You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen, friends, colleagues. It's lovely to see so many here this evening because the closer we get to Christmas, the harder it is sometimes to come out on, I don't know, certainly a cold, dark evening. So it's great that so many of you are here. My name is Jane Olmeyer. I'm the director of the Trinity Long Room Hub and uh, uh, also professor of modern history here in Trinity. And um, it's my pleasure to just simply welcome you all. I'm going to hand over the floor to uh, the Vice Provost, uh, Chris Morash, in a moment to introduce Barry McRae. But I did want to say a word or two about what we do here in the Hub and why these visiting research fellowships are so important to us. So for those of you who are coming to us for the first time, we're a research institute in the arts and humanities. Um, and in this really lovely building, um, we uh, do three things. We celebrate the excellence of the arts and humanities. And just again, to remind you, if you don't already know, that it's the most highly ranked area, not just uh, uh, here in Trinity, but anywhere in Ireland. That's something to celebrate, given the lack of investment there's been in the arts and humanities. Um, and I say that, Chris, because I know you nod. And, 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 uh, 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 the next thing we do is promote multi and interdisciplinarity. And about 20 different disciplines are represented by um, our early career researchers who are based here and our fellows. They come from many, many different uh, disciplines, again, across the arts and humanities. The third thing we do is public humanities. We take the learnings and the insights from the arts and humanities to widest possible audiences. Last week was a very busy week for public engagement. We behind the headlines, we had a lovely event with Catherine Corliss. There was a lot going on last week. But today, obviously, is another example um, of that wider engagement. And it's by one of our visiting research fellows. So we've got a fabulous visiting research fellow program that we run here in the Hub. Some of our fellows are co-funded by the European Commission and they're with us for 12 months, that you're all in the room. Um, uh, and some of our uh, uh, fellowships are for shorter periods of time. Anything between four, six weeks uh, and three months. Um, and these fellowships obviously are fantastic because it allows us to benefit from having, as part of our community, uh, just some fabulous academics from around the world. So we have a particular relationship with a number of universities, including the University of Notre Dame, and obviously Barry comes uh, uh, from the University of Notre Dame. So it's been tremendous having Barry here and his colleague Rory Rappel uh, uh, for the term. And hopefully every year we will have other scholars coming uh, from the Arts and Humanities uh, in Notre Dame to be here in the Hub. But equally, uh, we will encourage and hopefully uh, be able to send people to, to South Bend uh, as well. So that's really just a little bit of context. Um, and... Uh, Having Barry, it's always very sad to say goodbye to a fellow because just very personally, Barry, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you with us here in the Hub. Thank you very much indeed for just engaging with such enthusiasm and everything that we do. So we really appreciate it. And obviously, we're looking forward to seeing your publications that come out. Uh, and there's no escape. Once you've been a fellow in the Hub, you're always a fellow in the Hub. So uh, uh, you're part of the, the Hub family. That's it. No escape. Uh, Anyway, if I could now simply invite uh, Chris Morash to introduce uh, Barry McRae. Chris. Thank you so much, Jane. Um, I'm increasingly fascinated by the ways in which books haunt places. And uh, I sort of come around to the view that every student who starts here in Trinity should be given a copy of Barry's novel, First Verse, because it's a book that, for me, haunts the way I, I, I and I still, when I go through Botany Bay, I still look for the moon that's there, although I suspect it might be fictional. If you haven't read the book, the novel, it's about a group, it's about a student who gets involved with another group of students who have, they live their lives in very interesting ways. They live their lives by books, but not in the way we usually think. They use books for prognostication. They take a random book off the shelf, open it to a random page, and this random sentence, the random words that happen to be on those pages guide what they do next. And I always think that that idea of living your life through fragments of language is a great metaphor for what happens to a lot of people when they come to university. It's a great metaphor for a campus haunted by books. I think in spite of 
with all the great work we do in sciences and technology in this university, the center of the campus here is that great monolith, like the monolith from Kubrick's 2001 of the library that's out there, this astonishing room full of books. Our speaker tonight is also somebody haunted by books. Um, you'll see it in Barry's 2011 study in the Company of Strangers, Narrative and Family, and Dickens, Conan Doyle, Joyce, and Proust. I'm just going to pause there for a second. Dickens, Conan Doyle, Joyce, and Proust. You'll also get a sense of this extraordinary range in the authors that are there, springing lightly across genres and languages. His most recent book from 2015, Languages of Night, Minor Languages, and Literary Imagination, Tackles an even more astonishing esoteric ranges of languages, looks at how figures from Sean O'Riordan to Pier Paolo Pasolini to again Proust are influenced by the phenomena of language experienced through the lens of a minor language. And I think for me, one of the things that makes Barry's work so fascinating, so compelling, is that in an Irish context where we have been very conditioned and shaped by a, a like a bilingual model, a kind of binary model of language. Barry opens that out, he explodes that into a kind of multilingual understanding of language that encompasses not just Irish and English, but encompasses not in modern European languages, it's also started to encompass minor languages. And I think that is it's, it's a unique perspective within the field of Irish culture today. Some of you here tonight were probably here in 2016 when Barry gave a seminar based on, on, on languages of the night. So you'll know what a treat you're in for. This is somebody who wears a lot of erudition, erudition very, very lightly. He also has more titles than most people. He's the Donald Archeo Family Professor of Irish Studies, Concurrent Professor of Romance Languages and Literatures, Concurrent Professor of Irish Language and Literature. That's three professorships all at once. But it also gives you, I think it's right, it's just, because it gives you a sense of the range of what he does. I'm tempted to call him Professor, Professor, Professor McRae. Um, but he's also, I should say, he's a lovely human being, great company, and I think you're in for a real treat tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, Barry McRae. but um, uh, I really am uh, filled with gratitude. Um, I'm sorry that I'm very sorry to be leaving and filled with gratitude for the time I've had here. <coughs> Excuse me. It hasn't only been productive, it's also been um, an affirming experience for me here just to see the humanities, especially in the institution where I was formed myself as an undergraduate, to see the um, humanities front and centre, uh, especially physically, on the campus, in, in, um, as well as in other ways, and also to see the kind of um, form of the humanity that is modelled by this hub. Um, I really enjoyed getting to know you all, and um, I am grateful to all of you, and especially to all of the staff in the hub um, for the time. Um, so today, uh, the, I'm going to talk for the next, I suppose, 40 minutes or so um, about the novel. The Language of the Night, the, the book that Chris mentioned is mostly about poetry, um, minor languages and poetry, but this talk, uh, which I've been working on while I've been at the Hub, is about the novel, minor languages and the novel. And in a way, it's a talk about failure, about traditions or language systems that fail to produce what looks like a recognizable realist tradition of the novel, and, and what that, those failures can tell us. I actually need a copy of my own handout, I just realized. <laughs> So novels are linguistic artifacts, they're um, things made out of language. They're things made out of language, uh, like as all literary forms are in one way or another. But what's special about this form of linguistic art, the novel, I think is that it's a form that links our psychological lives to our economic lives. The novel's interest is in how we perceive each other as social beings not as the disembodied souls uh, that we get in poetry, but as human beings as interacting elements in a variety of systems, including socio-economic systems. 
Novels trace how we develop internally, how our minds change and grow as we grow older, as we try, maybe fail, to cultivate ourselves, to improve ourselves. And with this psychological improvement, the furnishing of the mind that the novel traces, we also, it also traces how we progress economically. How, when we are young, we are fed, how we learn to feed ourselves, how we earn our bread, how we steal our bread, how we steal other people's bread, how we come into conflict, into contact, and enter cooperation with others as we seek to earn our crust. And perhaps it's because of this reason that the novel is about people interacting in collective systems, in institutions, whether literal institutions or imaginary ones. Perhaps it's because of this that the novel as a literary tradition has a special place for nationalism. And in fact, in some ways, Ireland is exceptional in this, that our literary tradition, the, the foundation of our literary tradition was drama, really, and, and then perhaps after that, poetry, and the novel only much later. Usually, the novel is considered to be the sign or the requirement of a developed nation-state. Or, when you're talking about languages, which is often the same thing, but not always, the sign of a developed linguistic tradition. From the national point of view of nationalism, founding a tradition in the novel, or having a tradition in the novel, is part of decolonization, part of imagining a national future. So I have the first quote on the page is from Bartolome Mitre, and I put it in because if we follow Benedict Anderson, the nationalism of South America, Latin America, was um, one of the key moments in the development of nationalism itself. And Latin American nationalists, like Mitre, were troubled by the absence of a novelistic tradition in their part of the world. So this is what he, he says. South America is the part of the world most lacking in original novelists. By the way, this is the prologue to his own novel, so there's some... It's not a humble brag, but it's, uh, it's, uh, anyway, it's, it's a, a preview of coming attractions, I think. South America is the part of the world most lacking in original novelists. If we were to investigate the causes of this lack, we might say that it seems a novel is the highest expression of a people's civilization, rather like those fruits which only grow when the tree is in the whole fullness of its development. Under the arbol está en toda la plenitud de su desarrollo. So this is uh, something that is on the mind of Mitre. He's worried that um, the lack of a novelistic tradition in Latin America is a sign that the society, Latin American society, cult has culturally not established itself. It's not um, blooming as a tree should. His worry uh, about the lack of novel in, in his cultural ecosystem is something that you find a lot in minor language situations. And he's not minor language, obviously Spanish. But in minor language situations, from Walloon dialect of French to Low German, Welsh, Irish, Basque, through all sorts, in all sorts of minor language situations, you get a lot of complaining, a lot of worrying about the fact that there are not, aren't enough novels. Minor languages always have, there's a couple of exceptions, but um, Breton is one, for example, but by and large, minor languages have loads of poets and very few novelists. The reverse of the situation, but obtains in more robust linguistic traditions, in which you get more poets and poetry. It's often a cause uh, of worry and lament, and I have um, just there's so many quotes you could choose from this, but here's one by Martino Kine. This is a translation by my colleague, Declan Kybert. Uh, next one in your quote, on your uh, handout. It is a threatening and ominous portent when there's an excessive zeal to compose poetry rather than prose. This is also the situation in other minority languages, including Scots Gaelic. As far as I can make out, far more poetry is being written in Irish than in English here in Ireland. Prose is a concrete base, the mason's cornerstone of life, and it is rough and uh, unpleasant as life itself. Now, there are novels written in Irish, it goes without saying. Um, and there are novels in Ireland, it goes without saying. But um, in both cases, Ireland in English and in the Irish language, these novels come belatedly and in weird forms. And in the Irish language, which is a cause of um, distress to people, there is no coherent 
tradition of a realist novel, such as you get in um, all of the major Europe, Western European languages, but not only Western, major European languages. What are the reasons for this? Um, there's been quite a bit written on it. There's a, a novel by Karl Nohorne from here, from Trinity, a kind of Burschel Nohornik, the novel that never came. Um, and he and others adumbrate a number of reasons for it. There were medieval tale collections, things that actually Deirdre here in front of me works on, sort of collections of tales, that in other, Euro other European traditions sort of coagulated into, into novels. That's what happened in French, it's happened in English and Italian, um, that collections of tales, medieval collections of tales, sort of uh, eventually kind of stuck together and became novels. And Irish looked like it was going that way too. Obviously, what interrupted it was colonialism, the lack of a wealthy reading public, lack of access to the printing press, and all of those uh, economic factors, colonial economic factors. But I think there are other reasons too, and it's the other reasons that interest me, which are narratological ones. And what I, my question really is, what can this supposed failure of Irish to establish a, not a tradition of realist fiction, such as you get in French or Spanish, or English or German, what can this failure tell us, not about Irish or Ireland, but about the novel itself? Does the difficulties the Irish language has in producing a novelistic tradition reveal something about the DNA of the novel? A minor language that wants to um, write a novel, or if you want to, say, make a novel out of a minor language, um, if you want to do that, you're faced with a number of narratological uh, challenges. One of the reasons you can see this, one of the ways you can see this in the Irish case, is that it's, it's telling, as I said, that there's a great preponderance of poetry over prose in modern Irish language writing. But it's also of interest that the small corpus of very significant uh, novels in the Irish language, in the, the, I mean, you know, in the modern Irish language, the, the small corpus of very significant ones that there are, have tended, unlike the poetry, to be written by native speakers from Gaeltacht. So there's lots and lots of um, people for whom Irish is a second language who write Irish language poetry. Uh, but the significant prose works in Irish have tended to be written by native speakers. So there's already some sort of difference in how people arrive at the language and what genres they then move into. It may be that novels and short stories, especially novels, rooted as they are in events and in social interactions, may be inescapably bound to the spontaneous vernacular. Because it, there is an implicit contract with the reader in the novel which requires the novel to be set in a plausible linguistic community, something that's also not true of poetry. The one I'd like to focus on for a moment is one that you all know from any novel you've ever read, which is The Encounter with the Stranger. And just think of any novel that comes into your head, Tess of the Durbervilles, any novel you can think of where there's a, an encounter with a stranger is a key narrative. Ulysses is built around it. Well, they're not quite strangers, actually, to each other. But they, but it is a key uh, Oliver Twist, that, those ones. And there's uh, endless examples. It's a key narrative mechanism. In contemporary Irish, like in so many other diminished vernaculars, I mean, diminished in their social reach, uh, it mean, the situation of contemporary Irish means that no one really would ever address someone they didn't know in Irish. If you um, are speaking to somebody in Irish, it's because you already know that they speak Irish. You wouldn't just uh, stop somebody in the street and speak to them. So it already removes one key narrative mechanism from the economy of the language, if you like. This is something that Joyce uh, brings up in a number of ways, surprisingly enough, in, uh, throughout his work, in fact. But the, the example I put on the quote, because it's also a funny one, is in Finnegan's Wake. It's a moment of things like that I think actually replays a, a moment in the dead. Uh, in a subtle way. But anyway, what happens is uh, HCE is sitting in the park and he is suddenly addressed by a stranger, the cat. And in this, in this scene, to address a stranger in Irish is understood as a rebuke, even as a violent threat. So, um, where are we now? Oh, yeah, some important. The latter, the luciferant, not the orimolate, hardly accosted him with, Guinness told Trudinju, dinner Uzo Finn, to ask could he tell him how much o'clock it was that the clock struck. Had he any idea about cock's luck as his wax was braided? 
And that's not real Dublin slang, I think, but it should be when you watch it Brady. It's, it's where Joyce's Dublin English is even more real than real Dublin English. So um, the cad's greeting, at least as HCE hears it, it's obviously a version of the Irish, Connors talk to a human with elusive fjall. How are you today, my fair-haired gentleman? It's a conventional salutation in Irish, obviously. Um, and asked after um, making it, the cad asks HCE if he has the time. What we get in, in, in things like after this from HCE is a long, rambling, paranoid defence of himself. HCE feels uh, aggressed, he feels threatened and accused by this greeting in Irish. And it's to do with colonialism, the fact that HCE is the, is the descendant of immigrants, there's lots of different things going on. But the key point is that to address a stranger in Irish is, um, means you have some other agenda. And this happens a few times in Joyce, and another well-known one is in Ulysses, when Haynes, the English uh, Gaelic revivalist, Gaelic revivalist in England, speaks Irish to the milkwoman, and she thinks she, that he's uh, speaking French. And Buck Mulligan says there, uh, he's speaking Irish, Buck Mulligan said. Is there Gaelic on you? I thought it was Irish, he said by the sound of it. Are you from the West, sir? I'm an Englishman, Haynes answered. He's English, Buck Mulligan said, and he thinks we ought to speak Irish in Ireland. Sure, we ought to, the old woman said, and I'm ashamed I don't speak the language myself. I'm told it's a grand language by them that knows. Grand is no name for it, said Buck Mulligan. Wonderful entirely. And I think one of the points of, or one of the points of this um, exchange is that Irish is not the language in which spontaneous exchange is going to take place. It's not, therefore, going to be the language that um, the novelistic tradition is going to come out of, the new novelistic tradition Joyce must have found come out of. So if you can't address a stranger in Irish without making them afraid, as it seems to be the case in Finnegan's Wake, what are the possibilities for writing novels in minor languages, in languages whose vernacular world has shrunk or fragmented? One route would obviously be historical fiction, though this is actually as much of that as you think. Other ones would be alternate realities, where you set the fiction in an imaginary place where everyone speaks Irish, or in a place that implicitly speak something else, but we just sort of dub everything as it were in Irish. Or you can play with the surreal nature of the resulting work, which this number of Irish language novels, which is which, which can deal with the kind of surreal situation of people speaking Irish to each other with no explanation. And you see this, if you watch any drama on T.G. Carr, you see the struggles um, that scriptwriters have with this. So in, in Russ Maroon, for example, the soap opera, people from all all corners of uh, Irish, of Ireland, of all different dialects, inexplicably gather in this one village and uh, live their lives together. That's uh, one. Or there's um, Kurpokas Anna was a number of the crime series, and that was just set in a kind of alternative reality, kind of Grailopolis, where just everybody speaks Irish and there's no explanation given. But my point is that no matter how straightforward the situation, to set, um, to to, to set kind of extended narratives in Irish makes that narrative ipso facto experimental in some way. The opposite of what happens generically in, modern, in major languages. And in fact, the Rosnaroon um, example is, uh, is, is, is the transition to my uh, next point, which is about geography. I think the way Irish struggles at building these fictional worlds suggests that geography has a special place in the inner life of the novel. Some force is given to this idea by the fact that the two most successful literary novelists in Irish, Martin O'Kine and Joseph Mokrina, were not only native speakers, but they came from South Connemara and Northwestern Dawn, places whose dialects have been far less prestigious for poetry in the Irish tradition, but which constitute the most extensive geographical blocks of Irish-speaking as these areas and their populations have diminished in size, and as the use of the language has also declined within them, the possibilities for realist fiction in Irish have been severely reduced. And that's something you see with the Welsh language novel too. But up until the 60s, there's quite a robust tradition of realist fiction in Welsh. And once the Welsh-speaking heartlands began to fragment, um, well, Welsh writing went, went the way of Irish too, where it's more poetry or sort of experimental. 
And the two most famous successes of modern Gaelic prose are, I think, safe to say, Martin O'Kine and Flann O'Brien. And in both of their masterpieces, um, they highlight, I think, this problem of geography. O'Brien's novel on the Vacht of the Poor Mouth, which I'm sure, how many of you know that, that novel? More than half. Um, I think that it, in many ways, is it's an anti-novel, a novel in Irish which is in some ways about the impossibility of writing a novel in Irish at all. One of the ways it registers this up, uh, straight away is in the absurdist, absurdist geography of the novel, which, as you recall, is represented as a frontispiece in the map, which is this bizarre um, world. It's sort of like the, the world that mapped the beginning of Lord of the Rings or something, but they have places like Sligo Jail, is um, featured very largely in it, or um, Springfield, Massachusetts. Um, but anyway, there's many different things uh, that are making us reflect on the fact that the geography of this novel is imaginary, is a fantasy. The novel is set in a fictional district called Kurkuhorcha, which manages to be walking distance from all of the three major Greta fairies in Donegal, Kerry, and Galway. Through the window of his house, our hero can see Tarry Island. Aran Islands and the Blaskets, all lined up nicely in front of them. The novel plays a lot with this counterfactual geography. It tells us that when the narrator went to school, a lot of his classmates walked from Gwydor, others walked from Dingle, while others just swam over from Aran. And sometimes, and this um, is what strikes me the most, uh, O'Brien uses this geography not just as a background, but as a plot device. And this is a, the next quote on the sheet. And, I like this one because it reminds me of something that might happen in an English market town novel like Middlemarch. <clears throat> the old fellow was in Dingle one day buying tobacco when he heard news which amazed him. He did not believe it because he never trusted the people of that town. The next day he was in the Rosses and had the same news from them there. He then gave half credence to the story but did not believe it fully. He was in Galway City on the third day and the story was already during the rounds there too. My pages are all backwards. It's like you uh, printed in the foolish way. It's like shuffling or something. What I think the counterfactual geography of Unveiled Bucht is, is it, it is showing us the kind of geography that would be needed to have a novel in the usual sense. It's showing us what the kind of territory that we Irish would need if we were going to have the Irish language Middlemarch that people have longed for so much in the revival. It's registering its impossibility. It's highlighting the fact that a creative solution in all senses is needed to build a novelistic world in Irish. What it suggests, I think, is that there is a link between physical territory and the novel, which has been broken in the case of a language like Irish. So there are two of the structuring narratological forces in the novelistic imagination, in random encounters and geography, which are revealed through the struggle of my life to death the genre. The next and final one I want to talk about is social class. This is something that we know is registered in a crucial way through language. The accents we have, the accents we aspire to have, or like hide, are all signs of where we fit in a socio-economic map. The novel, this is an old chestnut that you all know, the novel is often called the genre of the middle classes. And there are a lot of reasons for this. One of them, of course, is about um, the kind of people who read and especially, uh, sorry, people who write and especially who read novels. One of the ways in which the bourgeoisie wide away the long winter evenings. But it's also because it's the novel is a literary form that narrates social mobility. It's the genre of change and circumstance, of going from rags to riches, or sometimes the other way around. It is a genre of social transformation paired with psychological transformation, one that tells of the progressive cultivation of the self, Bildung, the word we take from German for it, about how one propels oneself into a higher social caste, and more rarely, how one may fall down into a lower one. This sets the novel apart from what we might think of as feudal genres associated with classes, the peasantry and the aristocracy, whose social is unlikely to change. In a world 
the world of the socially mobile middle class, as depicted in the novel, Cinderella's dream in, in the Cinderella story, which can only come about by supernatural intervention, can be achieved by work. In the novel, characters don't have to wait for fairy godmothers or um, you know, talking fish or something to change their uh, situation in life. They can plot, scheme, persuade, trick, and charm their way into higher social spheres. The novel, as exemplified in the 19th century by Dickens and Balzac, is a genre with at its heart a sense of the individual being subject to economic vicissitudes, either frightening or dazzling. We see characters ruined or made or rescued from misery or ruined again. So in Oliver Twist, for example, uh, sorry, I want, there's a, a very important linguistic component to this in real life and especially in the novel. And I want to reflect on the way language and class work in the novel in parallel with how that works in real life. So in Oliver Twist is brought up in workhouses, brothels, and criminal dens. Everybody around him speaks this kind of colorful Cockney, although he's lived further north, it's not Cockney, but colorful um, proletarian English dialects. Oliver, however, inexplicably, speaks the Queen's English and also spouts Christian pieties. Um, it, it makes him a much less attractive character than everybody else in Blackfoot. But uh, everyone around him, the Artful Dodger, Nancy Fagan, Charlie Bates, they all speak kind of colorful proletarian dialect, whereas Oliver speaks standard English. The novel hints right from the beginning that Oliver's inner self is already at odds with the social class he's been born into. His rise, we know from his speech, from reading the novel, we know that Oliver's rise into another social class is inevitable. We know we can rely on the plot to match up Oliver with his appropriate linguistic sphere. In a later Dickens novel, Great Expectations, Pip, a humble blacksmith's boy, is sent to visit the wealthy Miss Havisham and her protege, Stella. This visit, which I'm sure uh, all of you know, um, this visit to Miss Havisham is Pip's first humiliating realization of his own low social station. And it's partly registered through language. When they play cards, Estella laughs at him because he calls the uh, maids jacks, um, or various little linguistic uh, features like that. As we know, Great Expectations, a classic plot of social mobility, has Pip become a gentleman in London. And then there's a moment in the novel when Pip is sick in London, and he's already become a gentleman, and he's visited by, it's, it's, it's actually his, technically his brother-in-law, but really his father, Joe Garger, he's, a, he's an adoptive father, the man who brought him up. And he goes up to London to see Pip in his finery and his very expensive gentleman's surroundings. And Joe, who has brought Pip up, um, comically tries to change his language to match Pip's new social station. So he calls Pip, really his son, he calls him Mr. Pip, and he attempts and fails miserably to, uh, to imitate upper-class English. In this heartbreaking encounter, Pip pleads with Joe to speak to him normally, and, but Joe refuses. And we, I think the readers at this moment in the novel, can also hear how Pip's language has irrevocably changed as much as his clothes. He is moved to a new linguistic regime from Joe, from the one he grew up in from which there's no return. And the new linguistic regime that Pip is in, and which Joe is trying to imitate, trying to um, adopt, is also, this is the key point, the same language that the novel is written in. The third person, or the first person, but the, the narrative is written in that language too. It's the same language in which we, the readers, are addressed. So Pip's new, posh, grown-up gentleman's language is not just different from the one he grew up with, it's also the linguistic regime of the novel, and it's implied is the linguistic regime to which we, the readers, belong. A recent and very clear example of this uh, aspect of the novel is the Naples novels, a, a trilogy by Elena Ferrante. How many of you have read those? Okay, so many of you. Um, so these are four novels published at the beginning of uh, this century, in the 2010s, telling the life of two girls born just after the Second World War into a poor inner city district in Naples. And the story is the social rise of one of the two girls, and then the more complicated trajectory of the other one. It's had huge success in the English-speaking world, uh, enormous success, but aspects of the linguistic nature of the trajectory that it narrates are hard to access in translation. And it's for a funny reason, not because the book 
in the original has many different languages or dialects in it, but because it only has one. The story begins in um, poverty-ridden 1950s Naples, <coughs> in which everybody speaks Neapolitan dialect. And the learning of standard Italian is a constant theme throughout the book. Learning to speak Italian in school, which is in the first volume of the book, is the first sign <coughs> me, of our protagonists distancing themselves from the proletarian world of their parents. We have two languages, the one, the dialect, which is home, the apartment block, the working classes, all that dialect. And we have school, teachers, refinement, and ambition, which is all in Italian. And our heroes, the two girls, begin in a world of dialect and are slowly initiated into Italian. Their parents cannot speak Italian, and they never hear it spoken in the neighborhood. I have one example of this in the handout. <coughs> when Elena's mother visits her school, says, I was ashamed of the difference between the harmonious, modestly dressed figure of the teacher, between her Italian that slightly resembled that of the Iliad, just for leaving school, and the misshapen figure of my mother, her old shoes, her dull hair, the dialect bent into an ungrammatical Italian. She In the novel, the girl's encounter with Italian is the encounter with the big world beyond the neighborhood and connected in the deepest way to the long social trajectory of the plot. Two potential husbands, for example, present themselves. One, the well-educated Nino Serratore, who speaks Italian, and the other, Stefano Paracci, whose father is the local crime boss. And then in this comparison of the two, the next quote on the sheet, um, she says, well, Nino didn't have a red convertible, which the other guy does, but he was a lot taller than I, while Stefano was an inch or so shorter than Nino. And Nino spoke literally Italian when he wanted to, and he read and discussed everything and was aware of the great questions of the human condition. While Stefano lived shut off in his grocery, spoke almost exclusively in dialect, and had not gone past the vocational school. I won't tell you which one she picks, but you have to go find that out. But as the novel goes on, and the girls learn about sexuality, classical literature, feminism, the world outside their neighborhood and outside Naples, their Italian improves in tandem with it. So the whole social plot of the novel, not by social ascent, is also a move from dialect to Italian. So the odd dialect has an enormous symbolic significance in these novels. But there isn't any dialogue in Neapolitan in the novel as it's written. Not, not a single word. There, there was one word, in fact, but uh, almost nothing. Virtually none. All of the dialogue, even that of early childhood, is in Italian, with the specification that the, the, the narrator adds dialetto, he or she said in dialect, or this in Italiano said in Italian. So you just tell us which one it was in. It's all actually written in Italian. And it has a very strange effect. Such emphasis is laid in the novel on the process of learning, improving, and perfecting the Italian on different levels of ability. And we have, we have characters, we have characters that she tells us, well, he couldn't speak any Italian at all. Then we get a long um, dialogue with this character in perfect, very bland, literary so all of the dialogue others is retrospectively translated. One of the many effects this has is to highlight the retrospective quality of the narrative, the irretrievable goneness, pastness of the past. Not just of childhood, there's always something that is irretrievable, as we know, but also of working class laugh and language. These are realities that are banished from the narrative voice. They have to be translated. There's always a distance from them. Dialect, in, in, which is in theory in this novel, the language of their childhood world, the language of lower social class. Um, yeah, that is what dialect is. But the fact of the novel being Italian emphasizes how long the distance has been traveled from that world, how unbridgeable it is. As all buildings romance do, this novel will leave behind both of these worlds, childhood and the proletariat, and move to new ones, adulthood and the or rather, and maybe this is the key point, the narrator has already left them. By the time the narrator addresses us, she has left behind both proletarian world and childhood. Just as we can only hear about childhood in, in some form of retrospect, since children cannot address us in adult language and tell us their experience, just so, just as we can only hear about childhood in some form of retrospect or mediation, we can only really hear of the reality of some social classes when somebody moves out of them and learns 
literary middle-class language to address ourselves. So in answer to Gayatri Spivak's question, can the subaltern speak? I suppose one of the answers is, at least in the novel, only if she learns a language. So the move from minor language to major language is the trajectory of the Ferrante novels, because it is the trajectory of social advancement. Characters move into the language of the novel. It struck me, and this is an idea that um, came to me um, in the hope. Um, a novel, novel that is similar to the Ferranti novels in superficial ways is Edna O'Brien, The Country Girls, which I'm sure most of you know. It's also about two female friends from a backwater who make new lives for themselves in the big world. Had this novel, uh, set in the mid-20th century, if it, yeah, they're from Clare, the girls, from, from Tomb Green, East County Clare. Had it been set 100 years earlier, on 30 miles to the west, the acquisition of English in the novel might have played a similar role as in, in it as Italian does in the Ferranti novels. The girls' learning of English would have been a sign of their social and narrative trajectory. It would have been their building. The glamorous Mr. Gentleman would not just have had a continental accent. He would have been a native English speaker. And Irish, especially the now extinct Clare dialect of Irish, would have been the language of the girls' childhood and past. And they would have moved out of it and into English the way the girls in the Ferranti novels move out of dialect and into Italian. But Ferranti's novel is set in Naples, where the local minor language Neapolitan was still the ordinary vernacular, where it was still possible to address a stranger in dialect, whereas O'Brien's novel is set in an English-speaking island. So the girls adjust their accents and their vocabulary, but they don't change the language that they speak. The literary, the, the dialogue of their rural county Clare childhoods is, um, is, is in a distinct, sorry, linguistically distinct, but it does not have to be translated. So even if one does all, always, in some sense, goes up into a new language, we're not in a kind of linguistic, sociolinguistic world where this happens literally. They move from one register of English to another, whereas 150 years before, they might have moved from Irish to English. Novels are written in English, this is to say, because English is the language of social movement the language of the big, wide world that a character arrives at and looks back at a childhood from. The two girls in The Country Girls uh, do speak Irish once in the novel. It's um, God Save Us on the Continent, I think she says in Irish. Well, it's given to us in English that she says Baba says in Irish. Um, but she does so, so that others cannot understand. And speaking Irish in the novel at that moment is not a sign of um, their rural past or the, the language they spoke at home, but uh, the opposite of their convent education. And this is a particu particularity of Irish, which uh, Joyce is evoking in the passage I read from Finnegan's Wake, that Irish is a language that, for most people, has to be acquired through education. Irish can be a badge of different things, what you liked at school, um, what your sort of political background is, many different things. But it cannot be, um, in itself, a badge of class trajectory. So boom time fiction, which is uh, Dickens is what is, uh, I count Dickens in that, and Ferrante, in the, the, who's narrating the European post-war economic miracle. In boom time fiction, novels can generate their energy from the economic plot. Protagonists advance, and this gives the novels their charge. And for this reason, Ferrante can get away with an awful lot of linguistic blandness. She doesn't need to bother replicating the lost dialect of poverty and childhood, because the the story, the economic story, is so exciting in itself, and it can be written in the language of the middle classes. In a situation of economic stagnation, this is different. In the situation of colonialism, first of all, and this is where I just return to Joyce very briefly. Was that, I can't remember which critic it was, was it maybe Kenner, but one of the famous statements about Joyce is that all of the characters in Joyce have the same amount of money. And indeed, Joyce is interested in a single static social class, that strange class in Joyce that is in a sort of twilight world between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. Kind of petty bourgeoisie, but then they're very well-educated too. Ulysses being in, set in just one day emphasizes this. No one is going to change class in the time we get to spend with them. No one, in fact, in Joyce is ever going to go anywhere, really. The energy of the text comes from its, its recreation of language of spontaneous vernacular. 
This presentation of dialogue is of a static, unchanging, but very rich linguistic universe. Language is not something in flux, not something that changes or develops. So economic paralysis and linguistic and cultural and stillness, stasis, and part of the colonial system are put together. <coughs> I suppose, to put it broadly, we have linguistic richness instead of economic richness. That means we don't have language change or development. We have kind of digging deep, a sort of archaeological um, digging into language rather than showing it change. It's a big difference between Joyce and Proust. We don't have a story of change or development. We have a sort of releasing of the innate energy that's hidden inside language. Maya languages are nearly always in a situation of economic stagnation because when you move up in the world, you move out of the minor language and into the major one, out of Neapolitan and into Italian. If you're, um, this is true for immigrants too. Um, if you say are an Indian immigrant to the States, you move out, move out of Punjabi and into English. Minor language is something you leave behind. Joyce, in this regard, delves into language like an archaeologist. And this is the key for my, my, my final point now. What Joyce does with language in this sense, the kind of looking at language in a sort of time-stocked, frozen way and digging into it instead of using it as something to generate change or development, this is a link um, to the Irish language novel itself. Because, as I said, even if there's not an established tradition of realist novel in Irish, there have been some great masterpieces uh, of modern Gaelic prose. The one that is most often praised as this is Martin O'Kine's 1949, Crane Killa, Church Artley, excuse me, Grave Yard It's widely considered to be one of the great Irish novels after Joyce, and uh, I think it's unchallenged really in, in its reputation as the great achievement of modern Irish language prose. It is, as I'm sure most of you know, it consists entirely of dialogue. And this dialogue consists entirely of corpses in the graveyard, bickering amongst themselves. Like Flan O'Brien's The Poor Mouth, Crane is a novel in Irish, which is partly about the impossibility of conceiving of a novelistic world in the Irish language. The novel is keenly aware of this fact, of the limitation of its linguistic universe, its linguistic geography, of the fact that its vernacular world has shrunk. It is a product of a purely novelistic sensibility be confronted with a language and a, and a linguistic system uh, which is not capable of staying, sustaining a full novelistic world such as we find in George Eliot. And the novel insists on this in a number of ways. It insists on this, it is impossible to change social classes within Irish or to register a change of social class within the Irish language. You can only be more and more local in Irish. You can't be um, more middle class in the way you speak Irish than somebody else. And the novel insists then on the impossibility of um, on this impossible social climate dimension by pretending it's a novel of social climate. Uh, it, the first opening sentences of it is Nima Anotta and Fuintz no Kudze to Tamakari. Zimian Zealer from Anotta Nagena Hansishna. I wonder if I'm buried in the pound plot or the 15 shilling plot. The devil possessed them if they buried me in the half shilling plot. And then they go on, and the rest, an awful lot of novelists spent um, characters speculating on how many candles got put above the coffin, how much money was uh, collected for their at, at their funeral, how expensive their gravestone is. So we have all of the anxiety about social class and class movement that is in Balzac or Dickens is in this novel, except that they're all corpses under the ground who really aren't going anywhere. So even if these corpses are confined, are all our characters are confined to coffins, literally, in terms of its language, the novel has an extraordinary range. Even native speakers from O'Kine's uh, area near in Inverne have said they have say they have to look up words on uh, practically every page. O'Kine reaches for the broadest lexicon he can find and shows us the fullness of Irish as a potential, if alas, unactualized linguistic ecology of its own with registers, accents, micro-dialects, and so on. The dizzying range of the novel's style and vocabulary is at odds with the restricted social world, which in real life is possible in the Irish language. In other words, as the ecosystem of the language shrinks, whether through migration or language change, registers within the language no longer correspond to rungs on a social ladder. 
At a certain point, it becomes impossible, to use an example I used earlier, to imagine meeting a stranger who speaks a smoother, more sophisticated version of the language. As in, well, so sophisticated it could be, but it can't be a form of the language that suggests that this stranger comes from an exciting, faraway, glamorous place, like, say, Mr. Gentleman, or Salvatore Imperante, or the rich people that Pip meets in various dictations. All of the places that the, no that the characters in the novel buried under the ground as they are, all the places they talk about, Norwood in Massachusetts, Dublin, or Dalcahout, which is um, Dublin, or which is Galway, rather, um, all of these are English-speaking places. All social advancement points to English. The only real outside is English. Cranekilla powerfully evokes a world in which the Irish language is a full ocean, a complete system within which all types of human life and interaction are possible, the range of social classes and identities. But really, it's lamenting the long past extinction of such a world. O'Kine was one of the last writers, and certainly the last great writer, to feel Irish as a full linguistic ocean, with resources near and far that could be drawn on. This is obviously, it goes without saying, that this is given a lot of force by the fact that the novel speaks literally from beyond the grave. Social class and social mobility are in the minds of the characters, but they cannot move from their coffins. One of them, Mona Kion has been educated uh, while lying in her coffin. She's beside a schoolmaster and is trying to learn French off him. A kind of savage um, um, depiction of a futile building. In other words, a full novelistic world in Irish must be imagined and recreated beyond the real world, beyond the territory of the living. This is why Irish language is one of the reasons why Irish language writing is so interesting and why it can teach us so much about the in invisible governing structures within literary genre. O'Brien's The Poor Man paints the surreal upside-down world which a novelist, or indeed a soap opera writer, in Irish is forced to call into imaginative being. Crane Killer shows how the Irish language has the full range of variety and expressiveness to depict a full social world, if only it existed. It is all the shape and scope of a traditional realist novel that speaks literally from outside the land of the living digs down instead of moving forward.